0: Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of abduction, sexual assault, and child murder. Listener discretion is advised. Hocus Pocus, a magical formula used in conjuring. Hocus, a verb meaning to cheat. And from that comes Hoax a term coined in the late 18th century to trick into believing or accepting as something false and often preposterous. This is Method and Madness, episode 37, Victims of the Victimless. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The Body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local. The police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young there woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from The victim said she was stalked for 5 years, held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. And revenge, method and madness. Are you finding everyday life boring? Finding work becoming stressful? Are you looking for something to distract yourself? And maybe learn something while getting distracted? Try tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Alex Underbocky. And me, Christy McCann, where we rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and more. All things that most people would consider weird. Which is what we're all about. You can stream Weird Distractions Podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you need a distraction, we got you. I was introduced to the meaning of a hoax sometime in sixth grade. My teacher rolled the television into the classroom, always a thrilling event. Before she turned the TV on, though, she told us about how in the 1987 movie Three Men and a Baby, during filming, production had taken place in a New York City apartment where a little boy had died years earlier. Fast forward a few years after the movie was released, It was discovered that the ghost of the young boy was peeking out from near an apartment window. I remember my heart racing as she was telling us about it and a feeling of dread about what we were about to see. She turned on the TV and the movie was paused. She pressed play right at the part where Ted Danson's character welcomes his mother into the apartment to meet her baby granddaughter. As he's ushering mom through the rooms of the apartment, they pass by a window and my teacher pointed and said, there. I remember we all gasped and at least one of us burst into tears as we saw what we thought was a dark-haired boy watching the scene from behind a curtain. Our teacher, wanting to scar us just a bit more, showed it a couple more times before revealing that it was all a hoax. The Ghost was actually a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson that had been misplaced on the set, and the way it was situated looked like a boy, and thus a hoax became an urban legend. It made a pretty big impact on me, and I suppose it was an effective way of teaching a bunch of 12-year-olds about hoaxes. I've been pretty fascinated with the subject ever since. With the latest in true crime, or not-so-true crime, depending on how you look at it, both Sherry Papini and Jesse Smollett have recently made headlines. Sherry Papini, a white woman, was just arrested on charges associated with faking her own kidnapping, saying two Hispanic women were her abductors. Jesse Smollett, a gay biracial man, was sentenced to jail for faking a hate crime in which he blamed two white men. It got me thinking of the end game. What do people who orchestrate a hoax, or more specifically, a fake crime against themselves, what do they gain or what are they hoping to gain? With murder, we've talked before about the motives. You've got financial gain, rejection, love, thrill, etc. At a high level, faking victimization may look like a victimless crime. There are plenty of comments swirling online right now along the lines of, Well, at least nobody was hurt. But let's dig a little deeper and analyze who the victims are at the end of the day. We'll discuss some different cases, big ones you've heard about and others you may not have, and see if we can find some answers to this question. Why do people fake victimization? What's the reasoning behind faking your own kidnapping, faking someone else's, faking an attack, or even... Faking your own death. Faking victimization is not a modern crime. People have been faking their own deaths for centuries with motives ranging from financial gain to literally testing your loved ones to see what they'll do at your funeral. Take Timothy Dexter, for example. Born in New England in 1747, Dexter grew up to become a rich, eccentric man who made his money as a speculator. His odd financial choices and unconventional business ideas kept paying off for him. Dexter had dropped out of school at age eight, but managed to hold public office as an adult. He declared himself a great philosopher and a lord, and was delighted when people would address him as such. Dexter owned a large, ostentatious chateau in Newburyport, Massachusetts, with statues of men that he considered heroes like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and one of himself, all decorating his front yard. One day, Dexter decided it was time to conduct an ultimate test, and he faked his own death to see how people would act at his funeral. Versions differ a bit when it comes to the funeral. Some stories say that Dexter let his wife and kids in on the hoax. Others say that nobody was in the know. In any event, apparently Dexter didn't like the performance given by his wife, who was laughing and carrying on with her friends. And so, he emerged from a tomb and beat her with a cane, and then spent the rest of the night hosting the funeral-turned-party. He died for real in 1806, at the age of 59. Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, faked his suicide in 1965, after he was arrested in California for marijuana possession. He wanted to avoid the charges, so he wrote a suicide note and had some friends help him by leaving his vehicle near a cliff. Kesey fled to Mexico, but was later sentenced to jail time when he returned back to the States. So right off the bat, we're seeing some pretty outlandish behavior, but different motives. And one theme we'll visit throughout this episode is Faking victimization to avoid something, to cover up a poor decision, or even a deadly one. Let's dive in. I called the, the daycare to see what time she picked up the kids. The kids were never picked up, so I got freaked out, so I hit like the find my iPhone app thing. I found her phone and it's got like hair ripped out of it, like in the headphones and I took a picture of her phone on the ground before I picked it up. When's the last time you heard from her? Uh, she sent me a text asking me if I was coming home for lunch. What didn't happen to her is the way I'm looking at it. There was hair, like, in the headphones. Like, it got ripped off, and, like, ground. Yeah. On November 2nd, 2016, 34-year-old wife and mother of two, Sherry Papini, went missing while out for a jog near her Mountain Gate, California home. Her husband, Keith, came home from work and quickly grew concerned when he realized the stay-at-home mom wasn't there and hadn't picked up their two young kids from daycare. Using the Find My iPhone feature, he located his wife's cell on a trail near the couple's home. The phone was on the ground with a pair of earbuds on top and a strand of long blonde hair tangled into the wire. It appeared from that scene that Sherry had been abducted. Keith reported his wife missing, and initially, he was considered a suspect in her disappearance. He was questioned by police and passed a lie detector test. Shortly after Sherry was reported missing, her case became national news, and several news outlets were comparing her to a teen that had gone missing from nearby Shasta Lake in 1998. In that case, it was 16-year-old Tara Smith that had gone missing while out for a jog, And people wondered if the two kidnappings were related, particularly since Sherry looked younger than 34. And a side note, Tara is still missing. I'll put some info in the show notes. Massive searches for Sherry began, both in California and in several other states, in hopes that she'd be found alive. Volunteers helped in the local searches, and after a few days, they anticipated they may be looking for Sherry's body, given the amount of time she'd been gone. The Shasta County Sheriff's Department, along with the FBI, were investigating and a community was in fear that this could happen to anyone. Who was next? Three weeks later, on November 24, 2016, Thanksgiving, the news spread that Sherry had been found alive. According to her, she'd been kidnapped and freed when her abductors dropped her off on the side of a highway near Yolo County, about 146 miles south of where she disappeared. Sherry was captured on a camera running through a parking lot before she flagged down a passing driver for help. She was hospitalized for one day with minor injuries. According to the complaint, her nose was swollen, she had bruises on her face, rashes on her left arm, and left upper inner thigh, as well as other parts of her body, ligature marks on her wrists and ankles, burns on her left forearm, and bruising on her pelvis and the fronts of both legs. Toxicology results did not show any significant trace of narcotics in her system at the time of her return, and a physical exam did not show evidence of sexual assault. While at Woodland Hospital, her clothing was collected for DNA sampling, including her sweatshirt, sweatpants, socks, and underwear. Sherry told investigators that this was her original underwear from the day of her disappearance. She claimed that while out for a run, she was abducted by two Hispanic women. They were driving a dark SUV. They got her into the car, put a pillowcase over her head, and drugged her in some way that she couldn't remember much about the drive except she kept falling asleep to, quote, mariachi music. She was held in a small bedroom and chained to a closet for weeks at an unknown location with a bucket of kitty litter nearby. Her abductors let her wash the one pair of underwear she had on while she took the occasional shower, and they put an adult diaper on Sherry. The diaper comment was apparently never mentioned to police again. She was fed cream of wheat, which she said was barely mixed, some apples, half a banana, tortillas, and gritty Spanish rice. The windows were boarded up and the two women would play, quote, really annoying Mexican music. She described an incident where her abductors branded her and told her it was what the buyer wanted. In another retelling of the branding incident, Sherry said it was done as punishment for trying to escape. She said her long blonde hair had been cut, but she didn't remember why, and the two women only spoke Spanish, so she could never understand exactly why they did what they did. On that note, police questioned Sherry regarding a blog post that she'd allegedly written in 2007 under her maiden name. The post was called, keep walking. It was a detailed account of how Sherry, a good athlete, was bullied by a group of, quote, Latinos in high school. Sherry denied writing the post, offering up that someone m- must have written it using her name. She hadn't been sexually assaulted by her abductors, but she didn't seem to know what their motive was for taking and keeping her, let alone releasing her, which is extremely rare. She provided descriptions of the two women to an FBI agent, and sketches were drawn and released to the public. But otherwise, she didn't feel comfortable speaking to law enforcement, insisting that her abductors told her that law enforcement was involved in her kidnapping. So her husband, Keith, asked her most of the questions on behalf of the police. If you read the criminal complaint, you'll see there are holes big enough to drive a large, dark SUV through. Sherry wasn't speaking publicly, so Keyes appeared on ABC's 2020 and described the ordeal that his wife had gone through and communicated that Sherry was trying to heal. He told Matt Gutman that when he saw his wife in the hospital, she was unrecognizable from the bruises on her face. What followed was a mixed bag of beliefs, those who truly believed Sherry's story and those who thought it was a bunch of attention-seeking bull. The Sacramento Bee at the time reported that back in 2003, Sherry had been inflicting injuries on herself and blaming her mom. But for years, no arrests were made, no public appearances made by Sherry, no teary interviews on Dr. Phil. And if you followed this case or were somebody who habitually looked for updates, it was unclear if law enforcement was still looking for two Hispanic women or if they were building a case against Sherry. If you believed that Sherry had been kidnapped, you most likely assumed she was healing privately. If you were in the camp of, Sherry's full of it, you may have assumed she was laying low, hoping the whole thing would just disappear like a half-banana given to a starved captive. And then on Thursday, March 3, 2022, Sherry Papini was arrested for lying to federal agents regarding kidnapping and defrauding the Victim Compensation Board. The criminal complaint stated that Sherry had lied to federal agents while questioned, as well as provided text messages regarding what her kidnappers did to harm her. In 2020, Sherry was presented with some evidence that she'd faked her own kidnapping and was warned that lying about it to federal agents was a crime. But Sherry continued to tell the same story, that she was a victim. In actuality, Sherry had been staying with an ex-boyfriend, James Reyes, the entire time she was missing in November 2016. There was no kidnapping, No Hispanic women, and Sherry had inflicted the injuries upon herself. Through the investigation, it was discovered that Sherry had two phone numbers in her contact list under women's names, but they were actually the numbers of two men. This led to an investigation into who those two men were, and the DNA taken from her clothes and underwear eventually traced back to one of those two men. That man. Sherry's ex confessed to police in 2022 that yes, Sherry had actually been staying with him in November 2016 and that she had told him she was hiding from her abusive husband. She pleaded with him not to say anything. The ex told police that Sherry's injuries were self inflicted and that he had bought sweats for her to wear. And at her request, he'd purchased a tool at Hobby Lobby to brand her with. For years, law enforcement and Sherry's family remained tight-lipped about what the branding was, just that it was some kind of message. Now reports indicate that she was branded with the word Exodus, possibly a reference to the biblical book of Exodus or the Greek word, which means the road out. It also refers to any form of departure. Sherry is presumed innocent until found guilty in a court of law. If convicted of making false statements to a federal law enforcement officer, she faces a maximum statutory penalty of five years in prison and a fine up to $250,000. Of course, there's no way to know what was going on inside the signature blonde-haired head of Sherry, and there's still a lot to be revealed. But let's look into her possible motives. Despite the smiling photos of Sherry with her husband and children, it's unknown what was really going on behind closed doors. What the dynamic of her marriage is, or was, what her mental state is or was at the time she allegedly orchestrated an abduction. But what we do know is that before Sherry disappeared in 2016, she'd been talking with a few men, including one who lived in Michigan and had made plans to come out to Cali to meet up. That meeting never happened, but Sherry was also in contact with her ex, James Reyes. Based on this information, one could deduce that Sherry was looking for ways to avoid her suburban wife and mom life and wanted to have an affair. Of course, the ex, James, says that the two didn't have sex during her time at his apartment, but DNA on her underwear kind of tells a different story. If an affair was the motive— I'm curious how much of the kidnapping hoax was planned out in advance, and how much of it she concocted while staying with the ex, and further, how much was spun on the spot in front of the skeptical eyes of law enforcement. There are clues that she was creating a narrative right from day one. On the morning she went missing, she texted her husband while he was at work, something along the lines of, come home on your lunch and have sex with your wife. He didn't. And apparently Sherry would know that Keith's work was too far away for him to come home on lunch. Next, she had their wedding song, Michael Buble's Everything, playing on repeat when Keith found her cell phone. This is all very on-the-nose behavior of someone trying desperately to look like her marriage was perfect. How could I possibly be having an affair, you see? I love my husband. You can almost see the thought bubble over her head Imagining the headlines, dream wife and super mom is abducted by very bad Hispanic women. People who know Sherry have shared that she has a history of lying and making up stories to appear as a victim. So this leads to the assumption that maybe Sherry was seeking attention, and this was the ultimate victimization. The mom that was kidnapped, abused, but not too much, and finally released into the arms of her loving family. I think what Sherry didn't bargain for was the nearly instantaneous skepticism by law enforcement and the public. I followed this case closely over the years, and it seemed that more people were convinced this was a hoax than thought it was legit. But she honestly thought she was smarter than everyone else in the room. The other obvious factor here is financial gain. Sherry did receive about $30,000 from a GoFundMe, which reportedly— she and Keith used to pay off bills. However, it's unclear if that was Sherry's end game. It seems that somebody else would have to be involved in the planning in order for financial gain to be a reality. There's no way of knowing if money would actually accrue in her absence and at what rate, but the money was a nice little bonus to Sherry's attention seeking. There is this whole other angle too, Cameron Gamble, He's a kidnap and ransom consultant who allegedly didn't know the Pepinis at the time Sherry went missing, but he'd arranged to pay a ransom to whoever took Sherry, and then she returned the next day. But Gamble requires a whole episode himself, and at this time, I don't even know if his participation in the case was honestly Good Samaritan-like, if it was self-serving, or if he was in cahoots with Sherry to pull a money grab. We'll get back to Sherry, her white woman tears, and those she really hurt toward the end of the episode. But her alleged fake abduction sounds similar to another fake kidnapping, orchestrated by Australian singer Fairly Arrow. to find her. The 27-year-old entertainer has been missing for more than 48 hours. A large task force of police is following leads generated from yesterday's blanket media coverage. Later that night, Fairly Arrow was found beside a road, hands tied behind her back. When Fairly Arrow walked into a press conference at two this morning, she could shed little light on her captain. I've got no idea who it was. I was blindfolded the majority of the time. No idea. Fairley went missing from her home on December 15, 1991, in Australia. She'd been talking about being stalked by an obsessed fan, and her husband spoke out about this as a possible motive in her disappearance at the time. Fairley showed up a few days later on the side of a road, blindfolded and bound. She blamed it on the obsessed fan, but later admitted to making it all up to give her career a boost. She got her 15 minutes of fame, but her singing career failed to make her the star she aspired to be. If you watch clips of the press conference she gave after she returned home, she's grinning like she's accepting an award rather than pleading for the arrest of her captor. Next up, we go to the state of Georgia, to Jennifer Wilbanks, a 32-year-old nurse also known as the runaway bride. On April 26th, 2005, she went missing after telling her fiance that she was going out for a jog. At the time, she was engaged to be married to John Mason and the big day was scheduled for April 30th. 600 guests were expected to attend. Five hours after going for her jog, John reported her missing since she failed to return. Her keys, cash, and ID were all found in her home. According to a local news article at the time, police were treating the case as a criminal investigation and said, quote, all her friends and family said, this is totally uncharacteristic of her. We don't believe it was a case of premarital jitters. She did not get cold feet. There was a massive search for Jennifer by both law enforcement and volunteers until Jennifer called the police and her fiance from a convenience store payphone in Albuquerque, New Mexico, ironically on April thirtieth, her wedding day. I was I was kidnapped from uh, from Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know if my fiance has been on the knees. I don't know. And the person that did this to, you was, you to like you. <laughs> me was a he, a a It was an Hispanic man and a Caucasian woman. Jennifer, a white woman, claimed she'd been kidnapped and sexually assaulted by a Hispanic man and a white woman who kidnapped her during her jog, put her in a van, and played loud music. Later, when confronted by an FBI agent who said her story wasn't believable, Jennifer admitted to making the whole thing up. She said that the pressure of her upcoming nuptials was too much for her, so she hopped a Greyhound bus to Vegas and then went to Albuquerque. Her fiancé stood by her, telling the press that people make mistakes and he wasn't going to back down from his commitment to marry Jennifer. The following month, Jennifer admitted herself into a medical facility to seek help for, quote, physical and mental issues. She was charged with one count of making false statements, a felony, and one count of making a false report of a crime, a misdemeanor. She was sentenced to two years probation and community service and ordered to pay back some of the costs that the city of Duluth incurred by searching for her. It was estimated that the costs put into finding her were $50,000. Later, the fiance sold the story and made a pretty $500,000. After the two separated in May 2006, Jennifer sued her ex, he countersued, and they later dropped their lawsuits. Jennifer sat down with Katie Couric and admitted that she'd made a mistake and was feeling pressure and stress over her upcoming wedding. Dr. Sanjay Gupta spoke with Anderson Cooper on CNN at the time and tried to make sense of what was going on with Jennifer to both run away from her wedding and make up an abduction story. Dr. Gupta said that extreme stress, which is normal before a wedding, can lead people to do a variety of things, and that this kind of stress can cause your body to go into a fight-or-flight mode. And that seems plausible. Wedding planning itself is stressful, and it's possible Jennifer was having some doubts. Let's put ourselves into Jennifer's mind for a minute. You're stressed and stretched beyond your limits. You have 600 people coming to watch you get married, And maybe you're not even sure this wedding is the right thing for you. But backing out now would be disappointing to family, hurtful to your fiancé, a financial burden, and maybe you don't want to be the bad guy that puts the brakes on. So you board a bus and get out of town for a while to figure things out. But how do you avoid being the bad guy in the situation? You certainly don't want to be seen as the person who left the groom at the altar, so you hatch a plan that puts someone else in the hot seat. The difference between Sherry and Jennifer is that, from my research, it doesn't appear that Jennifer was out for the attention. I mean, if you want attention, being the beautiful bride at a wedding, attended by 600 people, isn't a bad start. So I tend to think that her admissions of stress and cold feet are pretty accurate. But with Jennifer Wilbanks, if creating a kidnapping hoax was a way to appear as the good guy, she didn't think very long-term in her goal. Ultimately, her story wasn't very solid. It fell apart pretty quickly, and she confessed within a few days, which also sets her apart from Sherry Papini. And thus, this made her the ultimate bad guy for not only leaving her fiancé without sitting him down and doing the decent thing, but also by wasting resources and time of law enforcement and volunteers who were searching for her. Not to mention that, like Sherry Papini, Jennifer invented a captor that was Hispanic. Both Jennifer Wilbanks and Sherry Papini faked their kidnappings while out on a jog. Sherry's description of her abductors seems steeped in racism, coming from a dark place where she viewed non-white people as threatening or as the ultimate bad guy, despite the fact that most violent offenders pick victims of their own race. Let's look at some more cases, but first, a break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com. Slash method and madness. That's betterhelp.com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Remember Susan Smith? This case is very different because there are two actual murder victims here, but there are also similarities in the way that false accusations get thrown around. Did he have any weapons, gun, anything? you got, got a gun. Susan Smith is a white woman who in nineteen ninety four reported that her two children, Michael, aged three, and Alexander fourteen months, were kidnapped. Susan said that while she was stopped at a red light with her kids in the back seat, a man carjacked her at gunpoint and drove off with her kids still in the car. Susan described the man as black. She and her husband made pleas on TV for the safe return of their children, and police dedicated hours to searching for the two toddlers. Nine days after the boys went missing, it was discovered that Susan made up the story, and she'd actually murdered her children by strapping them into their car seats and letting her car roll into a lake. Susan was sentenced to life in prison. Her husband was not an accomplice. Her motive was revealed when police learned that Susan had been having an affair with a wealthy man who didn't want to have children. Now, that may be the short-sighted and gross reason that Susan Smith drowned her babies, but it doesn't really explain what drove her to be this heartless and cruel. What lies beneath apparently was trauma. Susan was a sexual assault survivor, and Judith Mueller, director of the Women's Center in Vienna, said, quote, one of the things from which she has suffered most is her inability to correct her life, to reverse and cleanse it. Not only is she an incest victim, her marriage failed and she was rejected by her lover. What she heard was that she would not be loved because she was a mother. People who have been abused are continuously seeking to push aside the things that remind them of their imperfections. Here we have an extraordinary example of someone who was seeking affirmation through a love, relationship, and who could not tolerate the notion that she was imperfect and unacceptable because she was a mother. Now, I bring this up not to excuse it. I'll never excuse this behavior, but I do want to understand the heck out of it. Some cases, as outrageous as they are, may be simpler, like in the case of 60-year-old Robert Brandle, who in 2019 staged his own kidnapping to avoid paying out bets he owed for a Super Bowl pool. There aren't many updates in this case, so let's just say Brandl allegedly had put some fake names into the pool so he could win the money himself. When it backfired, he allegedly tried to weasel out of paying the debts by planning an elaborate kidnapping. On about day three of his abduction, police found Robert in his Ford F-150 in a parking lot tied up in the back seat. He had a rope around his neck, and his hands and ankles were bound with duct tape. But immediately, police suspected something was up. Despite Robert telling them that he was kidnapped by two men from his Super Bowl pool who made him drive them around for two days, he was cleanly shaved. And police said his demeanor did not seem indicative of someone who had gone through three days of trauma. Robert was arrested. There are tons of other examples, too, like the Brazilian footballer, that's soccer to us in the States, a player known as Somalia. He faked an abduction because he was late to practice one morning and would face a fine by the club per policy. His story fell apart due to surveillance cameras catching him walking out of the apartment like he'd just rolled out of bed. So in most of these cases, the charges really come down to filing a fake police report and or lying to the police. And the fines come down to paying the city back for using up their time and resources. And so what? So what if the cops have to go out and waste their time? Well, not exactly. This is time that's legitimately being taken away from actual victims. The time and manpower required to track down an individual who's hiding out at their exes or tying themselves to the headrest of their car, that's time that is taken from people in need. These are not victimless crimes. Let's break this down. Who really gets harmed as a result of these hoaxes? Let's talk about Stacy Smart, who in 2016 was 51 years old, living in Lewiston, California. She was reported missing on the same day that Sherry Papini was reported missing, while Sherry's disappearance made national headlines, international headlines, Stacey Smarts did not. Stacy was last seen on October 12, 2016 by her boyfriend, and by November 2, 2016, her daughter, who hadn't heard from her in a while, reported her missing. Stacy is still missing. And at the time that she was initially reported missing, her family was dismayed and heartbroken to see that so many of the resources they could have used to find their loved one were being used to find Sherry Papini. Organizations that they had reached out to, not to mention the media that was honed in on Sherry, the petite blonde woman who was being described as a supermom, they were literally told there wasn't enough resources for anyone to go find Stacy. I'm sure Stacy Smart's family wonders what could have gone differently for them had Sherry Papini not concocted her scheme. Would Stacy have been found if volunteers weren't already putting their time into looking for Sherry? And the media favored Sherry Papini over Stacy Smart, and why? Because Sherry was younger, she was blonde with the husband and two kids and the whole shebang— Stacy, at the time of her disappearance, was 51 years old, and yes, she's also a white woman but older, and there were no glamour shots of her looking ethereal, which the media goes nuts for. Particularly with the case of Sherry Papini, faking an abduction is hurtful to any adult that goes missing. We're already in this bizarro world of must-wait-24-hours-to-report-your-loved-one-missing, even though this is the most crucial time to locate them. And if you listened to my recent bonus episode about missing geologist Daniel Robinson, you'll know that his father couldn't report him missing until the 12th hour. He was then told that Daniel probably left to join a monastery. With people like Sherry Pepini or Jennifer Wilbanks faking these crimes, it gives more fuel to law enforcement to not take adult disappearances seriously. Well, unless you're a white woman. And then there's this. If Sherry's really guilty of this crime, then one alarming aspect is true. She would be totally fine with seeing two innocent women go to prison. Susan Smith would have let a man take the heat if the stars aligned just right. Jesse Smollett would watch two men go to prison. I don't think any of them would have grown a conscience if it meant they had to admit they lied. In the U.S., there's a percentage of people in prison who were wrongfully convicted. The Innocence Project reports that it's between 2 and 5 percent. Most wrongful convictions occur as a result of eyewitness misidentification, and false accusations are present in 70 percent of wrongful convictions. Saying that someone faked their own kidnapping because they liked the attention seems to be an oversimplification. Like in the case of Sherry Papini, that is the motive that gets tossed around a lot. But what does it really mean? Suicide is when people fake their own deaths, something that is described as a full-time job because of how much time and work goes into it. Steve Rambam is a P.I. that has investigated nearly 1,000 cases of suicide over the span of his 40-year career. According to him, the main motive is greed. Chelsea Binns, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, says, People who fake their own death are not strapped for cash necessarily, and that it takes a lot of money to fake your own death. And while there are obvious differences in fake victimization when it comes to faking your own death, violent attacks, or kidnappings, the motives seem similar. Avoiding something, whether it's an extravagant wedding or facing jail time. Attention, whether you're a self-proclaimed lord or a self-proclaimed supermom. Financial gain, an actor who uses media attention to earn a higher salary. Or someone faking death for an inheritance. Overall, it appears that someone who is that invested in making themselves a victim wouldn't even think that they're harming anyone. They're so focused on themselves, so focused on the need for sympathy and focused on that end game. Victimizing someone else never really crosses their mind. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all the support online and all the positive reviews. This is an independent podcast. If you'd like to show your support, go ahead and leave a five star rating on Spotify or a five star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and MadnessPod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook. And if you want to chat or discuss the episode, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is edited by Moenspo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected Podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.